Hey, good morning, everybody. I promise I'm not going to rap, so just uh, relieve that tension right away. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico, um, and welcome. So good to see you guys. Um, and we are, as you can tell, we're starting a new series, and we're going to be looking at four different conversations that Jesus has over the course of his ministry, and they all come from the Gospel of John. And we're doing this because um, if you weren't here, you know, this is somewhat relevant, but we just finished a series looking at Revelation. And in Revelation, we see Jesus as revealed in a vision, and it's kind of strange. And there's a lot of imagery and symbolism that is disorienting. And so um, for four weeks, we're just going to get into who Jesus shows himself to be as something as simple and basic to us, as familiar as just a conversation. Um, and so we're going to look at four different conversations that he has and just kind of learn about who Jesus is, what he does, um, and kind of put ourselves almost in the place of those that he's talking to um, so that we can learn with them about who this guy is. Um, and so this week we're going to be looking at Nicodemus and um, opening up John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And I will say that there's going to be some very familiar things to you in this passage. There's going to be, you know, maybe the most famous Bible verse in the whole Bible is in here. And we're not going to focus on that for too long. Um, it kind of speaks for itself. And then we're also going to talk about the concept of being reborn, being born again. And so that term is one that carries baggage with it. And so we have to kind of place all of that to the side and just try and interact with this text on its own merits and kind of like say, okay, some of our cultural baggage that we bring in, we have to just kind of like acknowledge, put over here, and just receive from the text as if we were um, an ancient person who is also seeing Jesus face-to-face -face and hearing him speak these words face-to-face. -face. And so that's the hope of this series, that we'll just get to know Jesus a little bit better and that that will help us to believe in him. And that's really the emphasis that John puts in his entire gospel. Is he's writing everything down, he tells us, so that we might believe in the Son and by believing have eternal life. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. So please turn with me to John 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, 
but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much um, for this conversation for this commentary on the conversation. Lord, I ask that you would help us, that we would, um, that we would be willing to be disoriented by your son, that we would be willing to be stripped bare, and that we would, like Nicodemus, be baffled at who he is. And yet, Lord, we also ask that we would receive this gift of eternal life, this gift from above. Lord, we depend on your mercy for that. And so God, even now this morning for, for us, as we may be really familiar with this story or this passage, I just ask that you would speak it into us in a new way, in a fresh way, in a way that makes us alive to you and helps us to love you and helps us to live in this world faithfully. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that is very hard for us, particularly in our culture, is God's supremacy, his sovereignty. And it might not seem hard initially. I think a lot of us are going to be confessionally aware that God is sovereign, we might say, yeah, God's sovereign. He, yes, he is God. So that makes sense. But then in our lives, we get really disoriented when that is true. And it kind of rubs up against our sovereignty. And one of the, one of the I think, most common ways that I've heard and even myself kind of think is when I think I have a better plan for how the world should go and then that doesn't happen, I get really frustrated. And I tend to kind of like just forget about God for a minute and try and do things and make things happen on my own. Like, oh, I know how this can go better, actually. So I'm going to do this. And I think a lot of us can resonate with that. We don't like a lot of the things that happen to us. We don't um, like a lot of the things that happen to our lives, even. And so when God or Jesus stop being useful to us, we find a different tool. We find something else that'll get the desired outcome done. 
And so Nicodemus might not appear to be in that position on the surface. Nicodemus kind of seems like, if you just read this, he kind of seems like this very innocent kind of like, you know, hey, how you doing, Jesus? Like, yeah, you're doing some cool stuff, going about my business. And Jesus drops like, truly, truly, like out of the blue. But actually, Nicodemus is very intentionally trying to figure out who Jesus is. He's kind of making judgments about Jesus. He's trying to figure out what he's all about. So, so far in the Gospel of John, Jesus hasn't done that much. He's called the disciples. He's gone into the temple. He's went to a wedding. He's done some pretty impressive things, turning water into wine, going into the temple and flipping tables over. And so he's gained something of a reputation, and Nicodemus is curious. And so we have to know a little bit about Nicodemus to make sense of this whole thing. So he is described here as being a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And so this is kind of like a double way of saying that Nicodemus is kind of a big deal. Like he is the religious elite in a city where religion was the most prestigious enterprise. So he is kind of a big man on campus. He is an important figure. And he knows a lot. Pharisees were um, renowned for their ability to understand and explain the scriptures. That's what they took the most pride in, was their ability to know things about the Bible, about the Hebrew text. And so he is coming, and he bumps into Jesus by night. And now we're getting into some of the things that some people love, some people hate about John, is that he uses these like very simple things symbolically. So it probably was night when, he, when Nicodemus talked to, to, uh, to Jesus, but why does John care about that? Well, what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, Nicodemus goes into this conversation blind. He can't see. And he's blinded by this spirit of darkness. He's blinded by this realm of darkness that is plaguing the world. And so there's a hint at the very beginning that Nicodemus is going into this somewhat blind. And so he's interested in these signs, Nicodemus. He's, he says, what are these signs that you're doing? We know that, we know that you must be from God somehow because of these signs, but how? Are you a prophet? Are you a teacher? Are you a rabbi? Like he's trying to figure, figure out what Jesus is doing. He's not prepared for the answer because Jesus can kind of see all through all of that. He understands, oh, Nicodemus, you want, to, you want to know if I'm useful to you. You're coming to me because maybe like I'm a good mentor. Maybe you can, I can help you be more of a better Nicodemus. You can be a better Pharisee if you know what I know or do what I do. And so Jesus completely kind of disorients him. And he drops this answer. He said, or it's not even a question, right? He just says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus is focused on the signs, but he's totally blind to the thing that the signs point to. Everything that Jesus is doing, these miracles, they're signs. They're signs of the kingdom. Signs are something that represent a truer reality. And so 
Nicodemus, by bringing up the signs, is actually talking about the kingdom, and he might not even know it, but Jesus knows it. He says, no, I am doing these things for the kingdom, to show the kingdom, and you cannot see it. You're not born from above. You're not born again. So that's a strange, strange statement to tell a living person that you're not born. (laughs) And Nicodemus is as perplexed as we are by what that means. So he just kind of like pushes into the literal interpretation of it. And he's like, "Uh, what, what do you mean? Like, how can a man be born when he is old? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb and that will help me somehow see the kingdom of God? He's just kind of like grasping at straws, like, oh, this got awkward quickly. I wasn't prepared for this conversation. What's happening? And then Jesus kind of unpacks it. And he does it in a very strategic way. How he works with Nicodemus is brilliant because Nicodemus, we already are kind of told he's a ruler of the Jews and the Pharisees, so he's priding himself in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, let's go to the Old Testament. Let me show you why you should already know this. And so he answers him, okay, well, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Why not, Jesus? Now I'm even more confused. So now he's saying being the kind of birth that I'm talking about, being born again, is being born of water and the Spirit. And this is, um, this is one of those moments where you're reading your Bible and you're like, okay, I want to get into the kingdom of God. That's the destination I want to go to. So here is a passage that tells me how to do that. Be born of water and Spirit. Gotcha. What does that mean? And so for us and for even Nicodemus, he's like, what, what is this? But Jesus is trying to draw his attention to the core message of the Old Testament by referencing water and spirit. And so let's go back to where Jesus is kind of drawing Nicodemus' attention. It's in Ezekiel, and we're going to look at chapter 36, verses 22 through 28. And it's, you know, it's subtle, but it is so core that it should be obvious. And that's kind of the point. So Ezekiel 36, verse 22, this is the prophet Ezekiel receiving a message from the Lord. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Among the nations you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So this, this passage is not some obscure passage that just happens to say spirit and water. This is Ezekiel giving the Israelites the new promise, the new covenant, which is the controlling principle of their very existence as a people. It's God's promise to them. And so this is the core of what it meant to be an Israelite in Nicodemus's day, is that they were people of this promise. They would have been paid very close attention to the fact that they were going to be cleansed by this water, that they were going to receive a new spirit, a new heart, new life. And so Jesus kind of introduces Nicodemus into this and says, why, don't, why, don't, why aren't you following? Don't marvel at this. This is core to what it means. And what it essentially means to Nicodemus, and this is why Nicodemus has such trouble with it, it means that Nicodemus is in great need. It means that his heart is polluted by idols. It's a heart of stone. It means that he doesn't have spiritual life within him. But that's not what Nicodemus thinks right now. He's a ruler of the Pharisees. He's in charge. He is the spiritual authority in Israel. So if he doesn't think that he needs this. He's just trying, like, hey, Jesus, just help me out a little bit. But Jesus goes much deeper. He shows him the depth of his need. And it's a need that goes to the very heart of who we are. It's our nature. By taking us back to that Ezekiel passage Jesus is showing us that we, our nature, our very nature, our essence is corrupt. It is rejecting God. It's placing ourselves, our idols, as the most important thing. Ultimately, it shows us that we meet our own needs. And so, let's be disoriented for a minute with Nicodemus and think how do we meet our own needs? How do we meet, make God and Jesus optional? Do we do it with money? Do we do it with power, influence, a relationship, entertainment, distraction? We do it in so many ways. And so when we bump into Jesus, we're like, okay, Jesus, you are helpful to us insofar as you align with our plan insofar as you are a tool for something. We don't go to Jesus in need of a new nature, naturally. We need to be disoriented with Nicodemus, but we do need a new nature. We need Jesus to give us that new nature. So hopefully you're starting to feel bad for Nicodemus. Um, and Jesus just almost makes it worse, <laughs> if, that, if that's possible. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So even if Nicodemus is saying, like, okay, now I, I know that I need this new nature, I know that I need this new birth, this birth from above, this rebirth, what do I do? How do I get that? Like, give me the, give me the five steps. And Jesus says, no. This comes from above. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. And it's a God you do not control. Worshiping a God that we don't control, can't control, is extremely disorienting. And it gives us, I think, a little bit of kind of existential angst or anxiety. It's like the wind. Jesus is saying, this is like the wind. Try controlling the wind. Try telling the wind where to go. That's like trying to say, okay, I want the kingdom of God, so then give me that. I'll, I'll learn whatever I have to learn. I'll do whatever I have to do. It doesn't work like that. That's not coming from a position of need. That's coming from a position of lack of information. But we don't lack information. We are dead. And so now Nicodemus says to, says to him, how can these things be? Right, so he's, he's kind of broken at this point. He's kind of humbled. He's no longer kind of like trying to keep up with Jesus. He's just like, I am a teacher and I don't understand what you're telling me. How can these things be? And Jesus rebukes him. He says, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is showing Nicodemus, you are in a different kingdom. He's using that language, we. Nicodemus started it. He's saying, we have heard, we know that you are a teacher from God. And so Jesus is kind of saying, like, yeah, your kingdom knows that I'm a teacher from God. This kingdom, you don't know because you're not from there. What is flesh is flesh. What is spirit is spirit. There is a kingdom of God that you can't see, and you're talking to the king. And so talk to me like a king. Come to me like you know that I am the king. And you have to feel for him. I mean, he doesn't have this information, so when Jesus says, he who ascended and descended, he's like kind of trying to do the arrows and like figure out what Jesus is talking about. But for us as the readers, we just go back to John 1, the very beginning, and we learn that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son eternally with God in heaven, descends to earth, becomes flesh. And it's for that reason that Jesus can speak in this way. I speak of what I know because I was there and I've come from heaven. Saying, don't you understand, Nicodemus? I am the new birth. I am the new heart. 
I've come from heaven for that purpose. And then he uses a much more poignant and direct allusion to the Old Testament. And it's in verse 14, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So as soon as Jesus drops Son of Man title, Nicodemus ultimately goes to, this is the end of the world, it's the end times, and if Jesus is right, he's come to judge the world. He's come to bring all things to their conclusion. And I'm not ready. He's disoriented. He's not ready for that. But then Jesus shows the significance of what Jesus is actually there to do. Of what his life actually means. What the king is trying to accomplish. And he uses this this illustration of the serpent in the wilderness that was lifted up by Moses. So this this is an allusion back to the wilderness wanderings. So Israel was brought out of Egypt, and they have all kinds of dysfunction going on. And so Moses follows God into the wilderness, leads all of Israel in there. And after a while, they just start grumbling. They're like, hmm, this isn't what we were thinking of when we asked to get out of Egypt, because now we can't eat anything except for this bread all the time. Same bread, tastes the same, and we don't know where we're going to drink. And so this is not going to our plan. We would like to go back. And so they start grumbling and speaking out against God and against Moses. And so God actually sends these fiery serpents to bite the Israelites, and they're dying. These serpents are biting them, and they're dying left and right. And so they start crying out for mercy, and Moses intercedes. And so God tells Moses, okay, fashion this snake And so Moses makes a bronze snake, and he lifts it up. Anyone who looks on the snake will be healed and will live. And so why did God do that? I got this question in Portico Kids a couple weeks ago. We were going through this story, and one of the kids was like, why did God do that? (laughs) I was like, oh, that's a good question. God was trying to show the Israelites by using the physical threat of the snake. He was trying to show them the peril that their souls were in when they grumbled against God, when they were bitter about being the redeemed people of God. And ultimately, he sent the snake to show them his purpose for them, which is to redeem them. And to save them. But it wasn't going to be on their terms. It wasn't going to be based on what they could do or accomplish. All they were going to do is look up at the snake. And so in the same way, Jesus is drawing a parallel to himself. The son of man is going to be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And so there's a couple of questions here that are helpful to consider. What does does he mean by saying lifted up? This is an allusion to, obviously, his, his crucifixion. Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Everyone who believes in Jesus dying for their sins will receive eternal life. But Jesus being lifted up on the cross in his crucifixion, it's also an exaltation. 
It's also an enthronement. It's the moment that he conquers death and evil. It's the moment that he overcomes our sinfulness, our fallen natures. And so he is also lifted up, being exalted as the rightful king of the world as he goes to the cross. The second question is, if God was able to heal the Israelites using a little bronze snake, how much more will looking and believing and trusting in the Son of Man on the cross fully heal you? Fully accomplish all of God's purposes for his people. It's much more valuable, much more effective than a snake. And yet, there's something about the Son of Man being lifted up in that way, crucified, dying, something so valuable being tarnished in that way that also brings us offense because it actually is showing us the depth of our need. So when we look at Jesus, when we see Jesus and his purpose and who he is and what he's done, we're confronted with, again, once again, the depth of our need. He had to die for us. It was the only way. He had to face that because that was the extent of our misery. That was the extent of our rebellion, is that we deserve death. And so we need both that, the offense of Jesus and what his message means about us, and we also need the love of God expressed in Jesus and what that says about who God is. And so this gets us to kind of the resolution of this. Um, well, it, it's a type of resolution. Nicodemus just kind of goes away at this point. Like, he's gone. We don't see him again until later. And you guys should just look it up. What happens? What happens to Nicodemus? What's, what's he doing? Um, it's interesting, but John just kind of now gives this very beautiful expression of what Jesus was just talking about. Um, and this is, we're, we're not really going to dig into this too much. It's very familiar to us, and so we're just kind of soaking it and think about it in this context. But we are going to look at like, okay, so what does this mean for us then? What do we do? Like, if we, if we see our need for Jesus, and then we look and trust Jesus as he's lifted up, now what? And so, we'll just read this, and then, and then just a couple of things from it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we're kind of exposed with Nicodemus. We're just kind of sitting at this point at the feet of Jesus, looking up. And 
submitting to his supremacy, submitting to his sovereignty. And so we get this amazing picture of God's love. And it's like, yes, now you're in the right place. Know the God that you are under. And it's a God who so loved the world that he gave freely of his son that we would receive him. It's a God who saw all of the darkness of the world and gave of his, his most precious possession to enter that darkness and to pull people out of darkness and into light. It's a God who does not have a desire to condemn the world, but to save the world through the Son. And so you're seeing the purpose of God in this is mercy. The purpose of God doing this is not judgment, but is of mercy. Is there judgment? Yeah, there is a judgment. And that's what he says. This is the judgment. It's that you didn't even want this gift. You despised this gift. You so despised it that you destroyed it. So that's the first thing, is we just get to bask in the goodness of God, the goodness of the God that we are under, that we submit to. The second thing is it actually gives us instruction for how to live now. So once again, we have to kind of ask ourselves, if we need Jesus, we recognize our need for Jesus, then we look at Jesus, accept Jesus, why do we spend our whole life cultivating a life where we no longer need him? Like, we do this as Christians all the time. We try and live in such a way that we never have to go back to the cross. We think, oh yeah, I received forgiveness from my sins. Now, I'm in sanctification. I, I live now, and I'm better this is where some of that baggage of that born-again kind of connotation comes in. It's like, oh, now that I'm born again, I'm good. Like, I'm, look at me. You can see how good God is by looking at my life. And we live like this. And you can see how, when you're reading this, it, it can be tempting to think that. Like, oh, yeah, like, we should have lives that are so good that now people look to us to see God. But that's not what this is saying. Look carefully. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Verse 21, whoever does what is true, stop right there. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's basically a way of saying whoever lives faithfully in light of what was just said. So living in accordance with the Son of Man being lifted up for your salvation. Whoever lives in accordance with that, whoever lives faithfully to that, comes to the light. Why do they come to the light? It's not because there's no darkness in them. It's not because that they um, you know, are so good that nothing, they, the light is not threatening to them. No, instead... They come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
That means that everything about who you are, the purpose is to show off the mercy, the goodness of God. So guess what you can't do? You can't hide your sin. You can't pretend like you have no sin because that's a way of saying like, oh no, just look at me. I'm a work from God, but now by myself. You bring your sin into the light to say, this is what God is doing with me, a sinner. John makes this explicitly clear in one of his letters, 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. And he knows how it's going to get misunderstood, and so he kind of addresses it. He says this, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So you see, resting in Jesus is a life of walking in the light, of bringing your life as you are into the light and letting Jesus work in you. And being content with that, resting with that. So, for resting in Jesus, we are now under the authority of Jesus as the king. So, we let go of Jesus as a social tool. We let go of Jesus as a political tool, as an emotional tool, a psychological tool, as a miracle worker, We let go of Jesus as a tool for anything. We let go of our thought of him being a means to our end. Because Jesus tells us, I am the means and I am the end. So what do we do? Well, one of the things that I think is really helpful, and this is where we'll end, is telling us, teaching us how to rest in Jesus. And this is a quote from Robert Murray McShane. He's an old Scottish pastor. He says, first he takes us to Jeremiah 17, 9, where he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Repose in his almighty arms. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, that you disorient us and disrupt us, and you don't allow us to think that we're basically okay and just need a little advice or just need a little knowledge. But Lord, that you see the depth of our need, you see the depth of our problem, 
and that you fulfill your promise to cleanse us, to give us a new heart, to give us a new nature, to give us your spirit, to make us your people. And so, Lord, help us rest in that. Help us to let go of all the different ways that we try to create our own rest, try to create our own meaning, try to be our own God, live in a different kingdom. God, and just give us the peace of the knowledge that you are good and you are faithful and you are the king. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.